This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. For more, visit lbj.utexas.edu. Hi, I'm Angela Evans. I'm the dean of the LBJ School, and this is another segment of Policy on Purpose, a podcast where we try to bring to you people who are in in the arena and in the arena for good public good and good public policy. So today I'm very, very pleased to welcome Dr. Robert Jones, who wants to be called Robbie, and so I will do that on his <laughs> instruction, who is the CEO and the founder of the um, the Public Religion Research Institute. Uh, I wanted to get that right because I always think about the initials first. So welcome. And uh, we just had a wonderful session with students and community leaders um, looking at Stonewall 50 years later. And so I really am so pleased that you can spend some time with us this afternoon. Oh, thanks. I'm thrilled to be here. Good. So I want to start with something pretty general. You know, when we start thinking about the United States and the founding principle of separation of church and state and all that you've been in, do you really believe we can actually get a separation Mm. of church and state? Well, you know, it's always been um, a tricky balance, um, as you know. Um, Here's one thing I think is different, though. Um, We have always had a kind of white Protestant majority that has never really been threatened by waves of immigration. Now, we've had plenty of national freakout moments um, Mm -hmm. from waves of immigration, um, but nonetheless, it it wasn't the case that waves of people from Ireland or um, who were Catholic or um, waves of Jews from Eastern Europe really ever threatened to tip the scales in terms of the demographic majority or even political power in the country. And so I think there's a way in which where we are today is different than any other generation has faced on this question. It's no longer a theoretical question whether we want to have kind of uh, respect religious liberty and hold separation of church and state. It's now actually a question uh, where the demographic majority has some skin in the game uh, because we've just really in the last 10 years moved from being a country that was majority white and Christian to one who's no longer a majority white and Christian. So now there really is the, um, the case that um, you know, it's not just inviting somebody to pull up a chair at a table we own, uh, but it is trying to make room uh, around a table that really nobody owns um, anymore. And that's a really different place to be. You know, I think about that, and it's really true. Um, my grandparents came from Italy, and they were Catholic, and, um, you know, they just assimilated, and yeah. there wasn't this. I don't really – I never really sensed that there was this us and them. It was like you went to church and you did your thing and, you know, you had your perspective. But the fact that the precedent of this country is set on the separation, no matter what your religion is or no matter what your your collective approach to a spiritual um, – uh, being, uh, spiritual values, that's something we're always, every country has to deal with. But in our country, I think this is going to be even more interesting because that's kind of where we've come from. That's been our roots and the way we think. And so I just like to get your perspectives on how do we use the power of that mm-hmm. and at the same time uh, not create victims in yeah. this. Well, I think it's right. I mean, I think that, you know, one way of thinking about the story of American history is to think about uh, us trying to make good on the principles that we say were the founding principles of the country, right? So um, slavery, right? Yes. Uh, Something that we somehow made the Constitution work with um, until we had amendments that made clear that it didn't uh, work with it. Um, And we've always been, I think, trying to 
figure out how do we live these things out. And I think we're at a moment where, you know, this is something real. But um, kind of one thing, just to kind of point back to uh, your grandparents, you said? Were, yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, um, when your grandparents came to this country, um, when they got their immigration form, if I've got my dates right, um, they would not have been able to check Caucasian. Um, they would have had a separate box um, to check um, that was probably Italian, um, that was separate than white. Um, on the immigration form. And so there was a way in which they got brought in as um, – and there was like, as you know, like high anti-Catholic sentiment in the country in the late 1800s through the 1920s. And so, yeah. You know, that's true. But I have to tell you, that never came up as something that w- they were concerned about. It was oh, almost like, OK, yeah. we're here. What we're going to do is we're going to assimilate. I mean, mm-hmm. my – you know, my grandmother was illiterate. I mean, she she didn't she couldn't read or write. But for her children, she wanted my mother's generation to say, "Okay, we're going to work here. We're going to assimilate. We're going to speak English, and this is what we're going to do." Yeah. So we they never really said, "Oh, we're uh, you know we're sort of set aside because you know we're in ghettos or because they were or we're you know we're labeled this." For some reason, that never really entered the picture. Maybe because they didn't know it or people weren't talking about it as such. It was. It was. It seems to be very different now because people have much more information, uh, much more uh, able to work in groups through our social media and through the media in general than they had in the early twentieth century when they came. Yeah, and I think the assimilation pressure isn't what it was, right? That that, and I think that it is again because of this shift. That you know, I mean, we have this term like white Anglo-Saxon Protestant wasp, right? You know, and and the reason why we have that little shorthand is because. That was a very powerful group that was controlling pretty much everything in the country. And, and so WASPy America, assimilation, you know, is always always has to have a target, right? And so the question is assimilation toward what? Yeah. And it was always basically toward that WASPy norm. It was the it was the thing access to power, access to education, access to jobs. It was all sort of toward that norm. And I think that also is gone today, right? There's not this kind of sense of, oh, I have to assimilate toward that yeah. toward that norm. People are holding more onto their own cultural traditions. And I think it's because we have moved where that norm is no longer really calling all the shots. So there's not a real need to assimilate toward that norm in order to find acceptance, to find kind of pass into upward mobility. Mm-hmm. So in in some ways, it's sort of we're on the verge of something very different that no other nations really experienced, where we came from these roots. And now we're, we're looking at, we were talking about a pluribus unum, you know, which yeah. is supposed to be out of many one. Yeah. Well, how do you maintain that? You know, when there isn't the one, right. there's a lot of different things that people do. And we're moving towards some kind of a national value system, a national, the national principle upon which you behave as an American. And that's really pretty cloudy right now in terms of having something that everybody agrees to. I think they, I think most people like your surveys have shown, you know, I think the, endur- the endurance of the Bill of Rights, thank God, uh, has continued. But I think people are still questioning a lot of things that we just took for granted before. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, the growing divide, I think, even between the two political parties are along these kinds of questions, right? It's less about do you support abortion or not uh, or marriage equality or not. And it's much more really the deeper fault lines today I think are increasingly around um, what vision of America do we have? Is it a kind of diverse, uh, you know, ethnically diverse, religiously diverse country or is it kind of an older model of a kind of waspy 
nation and everybody else kind of just finds whatever space they can. Um, and I think the two political parties, um, even the last election cycle, right, the, the mantras uh, make America great again, right, mm-hmm. is all about this kind of backward looking uh, back to the 50s kind mm-hmm. of kind of um, thing when uh, kind of waspy America was more in control and versus like you know, Hillary Clinton had this like forward pointing arrow to the future um, and her slogan was stronger together. Right. Yeah. And so it's very explicit. And I, I, I think we're going to see this more and more um, as the two parties become demographically homogeneous and then attached to that are two very different and in many ways, um, you know, incongruous images of what the country should should be. Mm-hmm. The thing to me that was very interesting about your work, it's interesting about your work, is that Americans in general often don't align with where some of the far right is going with regard to, you know, our fundamental rights, of, you know, LGBTQ or abortion. Or the, Americans are generally are more generous about this. And you said something that was very interesting to me. It was like it's going to take us two presidential cycles for the electoral process to catch up with where Americans are. But yet that's a long time. And we have just seen that like just in a few years, there's there's a lot of chaos that can be created with regard to really understanding some measure of stability and, and the things that Americans have supported. And I, I worry sometimes about whether or not what happens in that interim for us to yeah. catch up, for the political process to catch up to where the American public is and why that isn't obvious in our political uh, landscape right now. No, I, I think that's right. We are at this like liminal space where, you know, um, we are at this tipping point. There's a lot of other ways to think about it, but where the, you know, the uh, the old is sort of like sunsetting and the new is struggling to be born, you know, and, mm-hmm. and we are um, in that space. I think, um, you know, the last election cycle was won by 77,000 votes at the Electoral College in three states, right? Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. In Michigan, it was only 10,000 votes in Michigan. That this point, like 0.5% of the vote, I think, in Michigan. So it's very, very close. And that's where we're at, you know, and so we have this, um, time where, um, yeah, the country has moved uh, demographically and on key issues um, to a certain place. But because of differential turnout rates, um, older white Christian Americans tend to turn out and vote at, at rates higher. So we end up with an electorate, yeah, that lags about a, almost a decade behind where the country actually has already moved. I want to pick your brain about something. Yeah. The thing that really baffles me is why the young people are not voting. Mm. So mm. you think like, yes, get out the vote. And, you know, obviously the work in the primaries, you know, those are really important. The primary votes are really essential. Um, we have students here with passion and purpose and they vote. And I think most of the youth are really passionate about something. I don't understand why yeah. they do not exercise the fundamental right to vote when in other countries and other nations they die for the right to vote. You know, we preserved it that way, but they walk, you know, days to get to vote. From your from your travels and things that you've looked at, what do you see as some of the fundamental reasons why we're not getting that engagement of the younger voter? Yeah, no, it it is a bit perplexing um, some, to some extent. So we did a big study with um, the Atlantic magazine um, last year. And we took a look at – we actually did a big oversample of uh, people under the age of 30 to try to figure out what was going on. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of things going on. Like first is to say that um, 
historically, people under the age of 30 have always lagged behind older Americans in their voting patterns. So this is in some ways not new with this generation. Um, and But here, here's a couple of things we found out. When we asked people about how um, – the, the most effective ways to create change in the country. Uh, what we found is that um, older Americans by far, and we gave them like five different choices. You mm-hmm. can volunteer for a campaign. You can, um, you know, give money. You can vote. And uh, and older Americans by far said voting is the way you affect change in the country. Younger Americans were significantly less likely to say voting uh, was the way to affect change in the country and more likely to say getting involved with the issue campaign um, was the way to bring about change. Uh, and about 10 percent of them said um, even um, activism online was a way to bring about change. Really? So hmm. part of it is, I think, um, less confidence that voting is the path um, to change coupled with the challenges of our um, voting system, right? So there's some real yes. barriers to younger people voting. Yes. Um, so absentee voting is like – crazy complicated to figure out how to do well. Um, There's deadlines, requesting forms ahead of time, and the number of people who know how to do that and then remember to do it um, is tough. Um, Even if you're not in a different district, if you moved or if you moved around even locally very much, which young people tend to do, right, uh, very often, um, you know, you may forget where your polling place was. um, You may show up at the wrong polling place. There's lots of little Hiccups, and so you know, for states that don't have same-day registration, uh, who don't have automatic voter registration, that's a hit, and it's mostly a hit to young people uh, when those laws aren't in place to kind of help facilitate. Yeah, but these are the same young people that can get together on a dime with social media. So you know, <laughs> you're going to let them part, off the hook. You know, part of me is like, no, we're not letting them off the hook exactly. You know, we're smiling here, but. Uh, uh, you know, they're just, uh, you know, it's not easy, you know. Yeah. So some things that are not easy are worthwhile and they need to do it. Uh, so part of it to me is that I feel they don't they don't like the choices. But at the same time, you know, they don't want to be engaged civically or they do to a certain extent. And so we're caught in this trap of how you push these students out or the young people. I, I yeah. call them students because they're my students. But my students are really good. But still, their their generation, how you push them out to say, you're going to have to work hard at this. You're going to have to be involved. You're going to have to hit the streets. You're going to have to pick candidates that you test. Uh, and you just it's not a choice to say, well, there isn't anybody I want to vote for, so I'm not voting. That, to me, is just anathema to who yeah. we are. Well, you know, it would it would absolutely change the landscape. I mean, the other thing to remember is that the kind of millennial generation, which now is, goes all the way up to like late thirties, mm-hmm. um, now is the largest demographic cohort in the country, right? So they would swap the votes of seniors if they turned out at anywhere near um, the um, the comparable rate. So, like in the midterm elections, for example, um, young people um, in a pre-election survey, young people told us that 35 percent of people under the age of thirty said they were absolutely certain to vote. Turns out uh, the um, the exit polls had them at 31 percent. That's, that's pretty that's who close. Turned out. That's pretty close. And that's actually up 10 points from the last midterm election in 2014. Mm-hmm. So that's actually quite a bit of in- increase, right, from 21 yes. to 31. But seniors were about 60 percent <laughs> uh, turnout among seniors, right? And uh-huh. so it just – it didn't close the gap because everybody turned out at higher rates in the midterm election. So yeah. we still haven't seen this kind of adjustment where there's disproportional turnout – uh, so that they would actually impact the vote. Um, but, you know, again, in places like Florida, um, you know, uh, well, Texas, Florida, Georgia all had very tight races, um, statewide races in, yes. in, um, in 2018. And in every single one of them, if the under 45 
crowd had turned out at anywhere comparable, uh, we would have had different candidates win because mm-hmm. they, they vote three-quarters Democratic uh, when they vote. Yeah. That's what I think – that's our big challenge uh, to, to figure out how to make that happen and make people you know, understand this is their, their fundamental right. Um, so there's there's a couple of the things that you said and that I've been thinking about too. You know, when you make when we make some sea changes in the terms of how people approach issues, not only just get involved in them, but how they look at some very controversial issues, oftentimes it's because it's been at the expense of suffering of others or a big event where there's been, you know, riots or killings or you know, people being beaten up or something. And you know, you would think by now that we'd be able to talk about this and have a sea change that doesn't take 20 years, mm. that doesn't require some kind of a major event or a major, uh, whether it's not life-threatening, it may be, you know, the way you live uh, threatening. And I, I'd i like to get your perspective on that in terms of all that you've seen, yeah. the, all the big things that have happened from the civil rights era to now, uh, that it's, it's causing people harm in order for us to, to turn things around. You know, what do you think is behind that? You know, I think it is comes down to like human human nature and, you know, like really that um, – like one of the things – so we interview uh, north of 100,000 people a year um, at PRRI and we ask about a whole range of, of things. And one of the things I'm always reminded of um, is that, you know, I live in D.C. It's kind of a political bubble. Yes. Everything mm-hmm. – is something people pay attention to. You know, we're reading like Twitter all the time. And um, it's a good reminder that like the rest of the country does not live in that kind of political bubble. Mm -hmm. And the extent to which politics intrudes into their consciousness is not that deep or that often. Um, And so I think that's part of the challenge, right? It's a big country. You know, people are, you know, struggling to make ends meet and get their kids to school and, you know, put food on the table and, that's the priority, I think. And so it it is, I think, often um, a surprise even to me after looking at these numbers so long, like how big an event it takes to kind yeah. of impact the, the public consciousness. And, you know, I still, you know, I think a lot of scholars, have, you know, pretty agreed that like if we didn't have those images of fire hoses and German shepherds attacking oh, that's, like teenagers I mean, that's and kids and women yes. in Birmingham. Yes, we might not have had, you know, the kind of uprising around exactly. that. It's like, yeah. But it's putting your fellow person in extremis, and yeah. then you get it because we don't want anybody to be an extremist like that, right? right. Well, most of us don't. Yeah. Uh, but then how do we get that feeling of being uh, taking care of each other or making sure that we have a society where that's, where you're safe, where it wouldn't take that? So sometimes I think about, you know, how we can do this and how we can help the students yeah. think about their roles as future leaders in getting this done without us having a major catastrophe or, or you know, a major, uh, you know, people's the suffering of people. Yeah. I, I think that's not the way we should be doing this. Well, you know, I do think I'm, I'm, I think things like and that's going to sound nerdy now, but um, uh, we are at a university, so I'll be nerdy. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I do think that um, opening people's perspectives up with research reading literature like it does expand one's sensibility of what else is happening in the world and mm-hmm. um, I do think that education you know plays a plays a deep role in that um, we did a we did a survey last year in California of uh, focus on Californians who are working and struggling with poverty and one of the mm-hmm. things we were trying to do is just really use data to paint a portrait of what someone's life is like when they're working two jobs yes they've got 
four kids and, you know, they're struggling to figure out how to take care of the kids. And one of the things that stood out to me is, um, you know, we found that um, that a third of Californians, for example, um, were in the workforce and still struggling with poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And, and that, that things like a $400 emergency expense would Does send them, them over the edge. Yes. Um, and so, you know, when you hear that, right, if, and especially if you've grown up a little more privileged than that, I think it is a way that it, even in, you know, a small way, it kind of opens your uh, perspective a little bit. And, and you know, if you continue to feed that, um, I think it does broaden uh, one's, you know, mind in a way that uh, – and broadens your field of concern, um, I think. So I, I, I think that education is part of the No, I agree with you. And I think yeah. that it's general education. Yeah. So it's not just the students who come to a university or a college or, you know, in, in our in our public school system to open this up to. But generally, how do you keep up with these this pieces of information and knowledge when you're out? Like you say, you're working two jobs. You have, you know, four kids. You're like a washing machine breakdown yeah. away from really not being able to do it. You don't have a lot of time to think through these things. And so how do we make it easy for them? For me, I think with the students, you know, it's our job and, and many fronts. One is what's the evidence? You, you've got to have, you know, especially now with so many things flying around that are not true. So what is the real evidence on this? Number two, what are different perspectives on this? And so it's not just your perspective because people really in, in major policy arenas don't really care about your opinion. They want to know what your learned right. conclusion is uh, and breaking them away from that is really important. Um, but the other thing is how we teach them to have these discourses with people that are very different than they are or having discourses with people that they think that they're actually helping and they're, they've decided what those people need rather yeah, than consulting right. with them. We're trying to break through all of this that's been built up to when they come to us. And I find that to be something that's surprising and challenging. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think I think that's right. We, we um, uh, just— bring some more data in because we, we another survey we did with the Atlantic was on pluralism and how often people encounter people different yes. from them. That's what it's making me think about. Um, and it's still the case today that we we asked about how often do you encounter people who have a different religion from you, a different race from you, um, different political orientation from you. And across like a number of measures, it's still the case that about a quarter of the country tells that they seldom or never cross really? those lines. Um, and so – I don't know. You can think about that as maybe glass half full, half empty. It mm-hmm. feels like a lot of people it does. to me yeah. with as diverse as the country has come yeah. that there's still a quarter that kind of say, yeah, no, mostly I'm kind of in this bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, again, you know, I think a, certainly a big university, right, is a place where many people for the first time are going to be in a dorm room or in a classroom and hear perspectives that they had like never thought about uh, mm-hmm. before. Yeah, we have to, um, we were talking about this, we've been talking about this for several months, and one of the things we talked about, how do you expose people to different ideas, and how do you have those ideas sit side by side without a judgment of which is a better idea or the other? Well, it happens in educational institutions, public educational institutions, and libraries, mm-hmm. you know, where you can go look at the books or, you know, go through, you know, your if it's going to be an electronic file and say, oh, I'd like to try that. But getting more of that uh, into sort of the mainstream of who we are, I think would be really important. I see 25% as high, given, you know, the interconnectedness yeah, right. of this country and, you know, in terms of our highways and our internet highways, et cetera, I find that yeah. still And the, and still the question was high. kind of a low bar, too. It was yeah. really just about how often do you encounter. encounter it didn't yes. even mean you had to have a deep relationship, yes. just like contact, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
I want to switch something because I don't want to get uh, uh, this finished without yeah. talking about you. Sure. And yep. Robbie, tell us how you came to do this and how you decided that you wanted to, you know, really start something, you know, like the PRRI. Yeah. What What got you going? So we're celebrating our 10th anniversary um, this year. Do you believe year. that? Um, yeah, I know. No, it's great. Um, and, That's uh, great. So, you know, it, it really – I'm an AWOL academic, uh, so I have a Ph.D. in religion uh, from Emory University. And you and have been on academies, and you're well-versed, and you have, you know, great publications. That's when – that's what I'm interested in. Yeah. Okay, you made the switch. So, you know, what it really came down to is um, I, I wanted to make the switch to the think tank world uh, because I really wanted to put my work on the ground in a way that I was having a little trouble doing in the academic setting. Um, but uh, – but – when I when I did that, um, what I realized is that uh, I was always looking for data that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And so after a couple of years of kind of banging my head on the uh, wall and kind of in the space of kind of religion, culture, and politics is the space yes. you know, I was really doing work in, um, it, a little light bulb finally went off. And I thought, oh, well, that means there's like – Room. A need, right mm-hmm. uh, here, and and to put it in business terms, a market, you know, for mm-hmm. this. Um, and so um, we, you know, I gathered a board, and you know, gathered some initial employees, and uh, we launched, um, you know, at the end of two thousand nine, um, and have sort of just grown it out. But you know, our mission really is to. Um, uh, you know, have journalists have the best data that they can have. I mean, yes. that's a, kind of our first clientele, but also policymakers and the general public um, really understand kind of where religion and culture and worldview, how those things connect to policy issues. Mm-hmm. So what do you see your challenges in the next five years as to where you want to be and where you want to take this? I mean, what would be yeah. an ideal, in your mind, image of PRRI in your role in the next five years? Oh, that's Great. Here's my Thunder Elevator speech. There you go. Right? Um, <laughs> the, uh, um, no, uh, in all seriousness. So I, I think the um, uh, we're, we're kind of at a transition point, you know, and, and so we started as a national organization doing national uh, survey work. And increasingly in the last couple of years, we've been moving. We're here in Austin, Texas, um, you know, just released some new data here that we're increasingly doing work in, in states. Um, and so I think that is uh, the next thing because increasingly I think many of these battles – um, are being fought out in local and state mm-hmm. legislatures more than they are in Congress in D.C. Mm-hmm. And so, we heard that today for and, sure. Yeah, yeah, and so I think North Carolina, Georgia, and it's particularly places where there have been a lot of demographic changes. The states are moving from maybe red to purple in, in the political map, um, but the demographics are shifting um, as well. And, and dynamics like um, the urban-rural divides in states, um, the generational divides uh, in states, and around issues, I mean, our, our big issues um, that we'll be kind of digging in are these kind of cultural fault lines. So uh, LGBT issues, immigration, uh, reproductive health and rights, um, criminal justice reform, access to voting, um, and kind of just in general, people's reactions to the demographic Mm -hmm. change and kind of how people are doing well or not and adjusting to all of this change on the ground. Well, I congratulate you. I wish you the best, and we certainly need more people like you and your organizations to help us find some very good information that we can help decision makers make decisions that are that are based on fact and 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 are authoritative. So thank you so much, Robbie, for oh, joining us you. today. Very kind. It's been a pleasure. This time has just flown by. Yeah. So likewise. thank you. Thank you. This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. 
We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. To learn more, visit lbj.utexas.edu and follow us on Twitter or Facebook at the LBJ School. Thank you for listening.